The crushing brutality of the cross gave way to dumbfounding bewilderment. Jesus was dead. Then, three days later, he showed up. After Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit poured out on the early church and began his journey across the oceans and across the millennia to collide with you as you sit in this room today. The gospel crossed mountains, the gospel crossed cultures, the gospel crossed hills, valleys, and what you do when you leave this theater carries the story further. The book of Acts began on the other side of the mountains to our east. It continues in your heart, and its next chapter begins on the sidewalk outside. This is the book of Acts. Be willing to tell your story about your encounter with Christ, what life was like before you knew Christ, what you tried that didn't work, how you came to know Christ, including like a, a pivotal Bible verse that the Spirit used on your heart, and then what life has been like since Christ. Be willing to tell the story and be willing to tell it even in hostile territory knowing that in ultimate judgment, you stand in judgment not just before the people whose opinions will surely appear on social media. <laughs> you, you do this in judgment before God. You do this in judgment ultimately before Jesus. You do this ultimately before God. And so for that reason, even in hostile territory, even if you are the token Christian, you tell your story. Last week in our sermon, we gave you a template that's still available at redemptionwashington.com for you to be able to build your story and tell your testimony. Your testimony is your experience before Christ, how you came to know Christ, what life has been like since Christ, including the pitfalls, including the difficulties, including even the tragedies. I feel like my son's death was a chapter in my testimony. I feel like my past struggles with alcohol are a chapter in my testimony because God was faithful by my son's graveside. He was faithful even through my struggles with alcohol. He's been faithful all along and his forgiveness never runs out. His mercies are new every morning. He continually does what he did beginning on April 16, 1991. He continually throws my sin as far as the east is from the west and does not count it against me. This is my story. This is my encounter with Jesus. This is my testimony. What is your story? What was your life like before Christ? How did you come to know Christ? And what has it been like since Christ? This is irrevocable proof of the efficacy of the gospel. You know what you know what you know. You know that you know that you know that Christ has come in and you are not the same anymore. You are a different human being. Especially, this, this may be even more easy for someone who was saved later in life than I was. I was six. My, that's my story. I was like a good little church kid. Like, I didn't, I didn't really royally screw up until after I was saved. But you, if you came to know Christ early or later in life, you might know this. How many of you guys, you are a different human being now than you were just a, a matter of years ago? Like, that's me. I am, I am fundamentally transformed. That's your story. Yeah, 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 but Jesse, there's this monkey skull on display. I don't care about the monkey skull. Like, I, I know I'm a different human being now than I was before Christ. So this, this is irrevocable proof. And there's a time right now, in, actually in a, in a sort of adherence to a logical fallacy, our culture is ever more adhering to lived experience, lived experience, lived experience. If somebody has a lived experience that they have been through, then that is irrevocable proof and you cannot deny it. That is a logical fallacy. However, it also provides an invitation for Christians to tell your stories. Why? 
Jesse, how, does, how, how, how are we not contributing to the logical fallacy if, if we're taking them up on the opportunity to chime in with our own lived experience, which happens to be lived experience having encountered Christ, been transformed by Christ, and continually redeemed by Christ in an ongoing process called sanctification that leads to glorification in heaven. How are we not a part of the problem then? Because we're positing our lived experience as fact. They're positing their lived experience as fact. What's the difference here? Do you ever give driving directions in a city that you've never been to before? It would be fun. <laughs> Do you know how to get to the ballpark? Yeah. Look for Lee Street. And, and there's a guy on the corner named Tom. <laughs> like, just make something. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because you've never been there before. I've never, I've never been to this city. I don't know what this is like. But you and I both know the fastest way to get out of the Seahawks parking lot. <laughs> like, we all know the quick ways to get back on the interstate and get out of a game. We all know the good, the good lots to park in because we live here and we go to these games and we know this stuff. So you do know what it's like to live with Christ. Moreover, you also know what it's like to live without Christ. You see, when someone who doesn't know Christ would weigh in on and criticize a Christian testimony, that is far worse than making up directions in a city that you've never lived in before while your phone is dead. Like, the difference between you and the one whose lived experience does not include Christ, is that you've lived that experience too. You know what it's like to not know Christ. They cannot know what it's like to know Christ. If they could, they would, but they don't, so they don't. Like they, they, they haven't, so they don't. They, they don't know what it's like from your perspective, but you know what it's like from their perspective. You have lived both experiences then. So in a craving for lived experience testimonies, it is not logically fallacious for a Christian to posit his or her testimony as more complete knowledge than the lived experience of someone who does not know the gospel because you know exactly what it's like to live without Christ. That is the opening of your testimony. But they would not be able to say what life is like with Christ because they don't know Christ. When I go to Pensacola, Florida, I know my way around. I have been there. I have lived there. I can, I can give you directions. I know what Tallahassee is like. I know what it's like to live in Orlando. I can give you directions all over Nashville. I'm learning more and more about the greater Seattle area too. But if you drop me in the middle of Spokane, I am completely lost if my phone is dead. I will not pretend to know where anything is, and it would be wrong of me to look at someone and say, yes, I can give you direction here, but look, someone who doesn't know Christ trying to describe life with Christ is far worse than giving driving directions in the middle of a city that you don't know with your phone off, because there are eternal implications to it. It's fraudulent. It is actually the very criticism that this narrative condemns. Who are you to correct someone's lived experience? It's exactly, who are you to condemn a Christian testimony? I know exactly what it's like to live without Christ. You don't know what it's like to live with Christ. So at this point in the book of Acts, we're seeing Paul tell his story. And we're gonna see him tell his story again today on trial before Festus 
He was the procurator. You have like a young emperor in Rome who was 17 when he took the throne. And so to help him govern, he was surrounded by these governors, these procurators. We've already seen him stand before Felix. Now we've seen him go before Festus. And now Festus is going to invite one of the Herods. There are multiple Herods throughout scripture. This is Herod Agrippa. And Agrippa is going to weigh in on Paul's story. And so Paul gives his testimony again. We first heard his testimony in Acts chapter 9. There's only three verses though. And then last week we saw Paul give a more expounded version of his testimony. And now he's going to expound upon it even further. And you're going to see Paul do again this approach wherein he adapts his message to his listener, not to change its content, but to be understood by the one who hears him. When he went before a large crowd of Gentiles at Mars Hill, he used their altar built to an unknown God. And from that kernel of truth, he then built a platform for the whole gospel. But when he would speak with Jewish audiences, he would build upon their shared respect for King David and Messianic prophecy. He knows what Agrippa knows. He knows that this Herod is familiar with Messianic prophecy. And he's going to call him out, saying, I know that you believe. I know that you believe this. I know that you believe in ancient prophecy from Moses, and it's all come fulfilled. And the reason I'm standing on trial before you today is because I believe in hope that God just did what he said he would do through Moses to our people. That's the reason I'm on trial today. Paul tells his story even in hostile territory. Here's what's so cool to me. There's all this pomp and circumstance. Agrippa is there with his sister slash girlfriend. I know it's gross. And there's all this regalia and all sorts of flair and all, all sorts of at least feigned importance. And, and Festus is there. He has just taken over for Felix. He's not going to last long. Neither did Felix. But he's, he's eager to prove himself. He wants to take on immediately this case that was just sort of sitting there that he inherited from Felix. And in all, the, all this setting, you would think that Paul would be ready to give a personal defense for himself, to vindicate himself, because his rights have been violated. The truth is that his accusers were trying to murder him. In our curriculum last week, you saw Paul give his defense before Felix and then Tertullus, the lawyer, give his accusation against Paul to Felix. And they two, the two men take very different approaches. Tertullus is working for the Jewish authorities that had Paul arrested. The truth is, according to Acts chapter 21, they were trying to publicly murder Paul and then they got busted in process. They grabbed him, they were going to try to kill him, and then the Romans showed up, so they dropped their knife and back away. And then the way that Tertullus tells the story is, this man was desecrating the temple, so we, we arrested him. That's not what happened. You were trying to off the dude, and you got busted. But that same, that same false defense is going to come up now again in this trial before Festus and Agrippa. So then Tertullus, the lawyer representing the Jewish authorities, gives his rendition of it. He totally ingratiates himself with Felix. You can tell that he has zero respect for Felix because in his opening remarks, his captatio uh, benedictiae, he, he 
falls all over himself to make Felix sound like an absolute genius. And when someone use, uses excessive tartuffery, over-the-top flattery, when somebody, yeah, that's a new one, <laughs> that's a real word, right? When someone goes way over the top to just signal how on board they are, in our modern day sense, this is like hardcore virtue signaling, like, I don't know what this campaign is, but I've been passionate about it my whole life. Like, that's kind of what Tertullus was doing before Felix. He goes all, falls all over himself to make it sound like Felix is an absolute genius whose policies have caused the whole region to prosper. None of that matters. None of that makes a difference. This is the, this is the most notoriety Felix has. But then Paul gets up and he shares his testimony. You can tell that one of these two men is obligated to tell the truth and the other one is not. He had zero respect for Felix because he tries absolutely to ingratiate himself and flatter Felix while he lies through his teeth using words like discern and truth. But then Paul's response does not, he does not pretend like Felix is a bigger deal than he actually is. He just tells his story. Now, here is the follow-up. Fast forward, okay, years go by, and now this procurator has changed hands, and now Festus is in charge. Agrippa and Bernice are just stopping by to pay a courtesy visit to this newly appointed procurator, and while they're here, Festus just says, hey, I don't have anything to write to Caesar about this, so why don't you just come weigh in and tell me what you think? You would think that Paul, in, in his main objective, would be like, okay, I was, they, like they were trying to murder me. In fact, they tried to murder him again before this trial. They were trying to murder me. I have had my rights violated as a Roman citizen. I haven't done anything wrong here, and that's the end of the case. No, Paul's main objective is, ooh, I get the chance to share the gospel with Herod. That's the main thing that consumes Paul. He is chained before people who have twice tried to kill him. Standing on trial before Festus, who is a procurator, who's not going to last long, who is now the latest installment, a revolving door of governors trying to uphold a legacy of a 17-year-old Caesar. And now it's here comes Agrippa with his sister and it's all pomp and circumstance and it's ridiculousness, but Paul's whole interpretation is, wow, this is an incredible opportunity. I have an incredible chance to share my story, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ with Herod and with Festus and with everybody else who's listening in. This is Acts chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Here is his captatio benedictiae. This is his opening remark, speaking to an authoritative figure, you saw Tertullus's in the previous chapter, and it was full of all sorts of virtue signaling. This is actually strategic on Paul's part. This was not flattery. Agrippa did know Old Testament prophecy. He likely was steeped in Messianic tradition, and he himself was very familiar with Jewish customs. What Paul just set up was how he's going to draw the net at the end. 
Spoiler, it's gonna end with Paul calling Agrippa out saying, I know you believe. Isn't that fascinating? So this opening, Captatio Benedictiae, is actually gonna come back at the very end. Remember how Paul opens this up. This is not blowing smoke. This is calling something out that he knows Agrippa knows. You as a Seattle Christian evangelist today can do the same thing. You and I both know, my coworker, you and I both know, morality is real. You know that there's right and there's wrong. And it's not just an evolutionary adaptive herd trait. To the marrow of your bones, you just know that by a transcendent moral standard, it violates a law. So you and I both know someone wrote that law that's on our hearts, that's in our consciences. You know this, you believe this. So watch what Paul does before Agrippa. He knows what Agrippa knows. You know what your coworker knows. You both know to the marrow of your bones Murder is wrong, for example. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope and what God promised to our ancestors. He's on trial because of hope. What is that hope? We saw this in Festus's recounting to Agrippa before this. It's the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually the same thing that gets you in trouble today, Christian. The exact same thing. This, this is, these, these are fighting words. Jesus rose again from the dead. I mean, that, that forces the listener to a crossroads. Either I believe that you're just full of it or Jesus is Lord. You can't have an ambivalent attitude. To choose not to make a decision by default is to choose disbelief. The resurrection of Jesus is polemic. You either believe that he's Lord, repent from your sin, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're drawn by God into salvation, or you proclaim, I think that's a lie, I believe Jesus is a liar. I found this effective, especially when evangelizing in the Seattle area. If you quote scripture, especially scripture that is unpopular, and especially if it appears in red letter text in your Bible, then what you've just done when proclaiming this scripture, sliding it across the table, asking what they think, I don't think this is true, then you realize that you're, you're accusing Jesus of lying. It changes the tone of the discussion completely. It's not a, it's not a sparring match. It's not a, it's not a duel of the wits. It's not you trying to outwit someone else. It's not a battle of the worldviews. It's a drawing of a kind, benevolent God on the heart of someone who's far from him to bring them close. That by the drawing of the Holy Spirit, they would confess with their mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is it, the resurrection of Jesus. The very thing that got Paul in trouble will get you in trouble too in the best way possible. And so place that, place that at the seat of the person with whom you're sharing the gospel. It just comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. When we study the book of 1 Corinthians, you're gonna see in chapter 15 that Paul, once again, is behaving in a, in a way that is consistent with what he spells out philosophically. What he describes in theological terms 
in, in, just in writing a letter to the Corinthian church to correct error and provide polity, meaning just the policies by which the church operates, he describes in theoretical terms in 1 Corinthians 15 what he in very pragmatic terms applies right here while he is on trial himself. When we get to 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see he reduces all of Christianity down to this, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He just reduces it down to this. Look, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we as Christians are to be pitied beyond all men. Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the, the, the beheaded pastor we're connected with in Pakistan is not gonna raise again from the dead. And everyone that we've associated with, everyone whom we've buried, and we get together, and we eat the cabbage rolls, and we sing the songs, like every time we go to a funeral, there's no hope for resurrection for those people. We're to be pitied beyond all men. That's what Paul says. But if the resurrection is true then it changes everything. Then Jesus is Lord. In the final verse, 15, 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, says, then we do not grow weary because we know that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. And it all hinges on the resurrection. Everything about Christianity hinges on the resurrection. And did you know that there were 11 men who gave their lives adhering to their firsthand testimony in the resurrection of Jesus? I've seen that fact alone be used of God to draw upon the hearts of militant skeptics because people don't give their lives for things they know to be lies. And the 11 remaining disciples who became apostles all died martyrs' deaths. John was the only one who may have survived for a while, but it, that's not because they didn't try to kill him. Every one of them, when facing execution with their dying breath, adhered to their firsthand testimony in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the crux of Christianity. If it could be proven that Jesus did not raise from the dead, all of Christianity fails, we are to be pitied. But your belief in the resurrection of Jesus gives you hope. It was for that hope that Paul was on trial. It was his testimony in the resurrection of Jesus that got him in trouble, and it's his testimony in the resurrection of Jesus that he brings before Agrippa. It's that same testimony I'm encouraging you, Christian, to bring up in your evangelistic life. Remember where we are in our study plan. There is a method to the madness. We have gone verse by verse through the Gospel of John. You see, Paul was speaking to Agrippa. He knew that he came from a Jewish background. You and I, however, are in a largely Gentile territory. And so that's why we chose John's gospel instead of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's original readers were Jews. John's original readers were Gentiles. And so we've gone verse by verse through John. You have the book to go through verse by verse with your non-Christian friend. They're not likely to be non-Christians anymore by the time you finish the study. And we're going through Acts right now because I want you to see what your God can do. And I want you to see in the closing chapter of Acts where our church came from. And I want you to see how God is faithful to his servant even in the midst of the storm and the difficulty while he's literally on trial and he stands before Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and lookers on and he proclaims his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Paul could face down Herod and proclaim his belief in the gospel, and still be locked away because he asked to go to Caesar. To Caesar he goes. He could have been set free long ago, but he knew that this was his one-way ticket to proclaim the gospel to Herod and eventually Nero for crying out loud. Then you and I can endure an awkward social encounter. You and I can endure a weird phone call. You and I can endure a moment of silence followed by the word, uh. If that's your worst case scenario, it's not bad. 
That's as bad as it gets for us in America. Let's be honest, okay? You might have some professional implications for your job, in which case, praise God. That is persecution. And you bear in your professional life then sufferings because of your affiliation with Jesus Christ. Okay, how do you think Pakistani Christians feel right now? If Pakistani Christians can adhere to their testimony in Christ, you and I can. If Paul could adhere to his testimony in the resurrection of Jesus, you and I definitely can. Here's why we're in Acts. I want you to do as Paul is doing. Maintain your faithfulness to your testimony in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tell your story even in hostile territory because you're not, on, you're not being judged by the people around you. You're not really in judgment before them. You'll stand in judgment before God. Your true judgment comes before God and you'll stand before him atoned for in your sin, faithful to his word. Even if all the world rejects you because of your testimony in Christ, it is better to be rejected by all the world and faithful to Christ than it is to be faithful to the world and reject Christ. Paul is in judgment before God, not before this governing body, as it were. Here's verse seven. This is what God promised to their ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. You see how kind he is to Jewish tradition? This is the hope. This is what you're working for. This is, this is why the 12 tribes of Israel labor day and night. This is what you're hoping for. That hope is fulfilled. This is good news. This is not inconsistent with Judaism. This is the fulfillment of what Judaism prophesies. This is true. I've seen this. I've asked this very question before in engaging a, uh, an Orthodox Jew who was adamant that Jesus didn't fulfill even a single prophecy. And so I came to him and asked, okay, well, what about the city of Jesus' birth? And like, if there's just one, there's one. And from there, we went on to others. So I was like, there are about 150 of these. Just know that. <laughs> and this is also what got Austin, my son, called into a parent-teacher conference. <laughs> because if it's adherence to this, that Jesus just fulfills messianic prophecy. Jesus fulfills the hope that ought not be met by a Jewish, Jewish audience with hostility. It ought to be embraced as fantastic news. This is the hope fulfilled. This is the promise fulfilled. All the promises that were made in the Old Testament find their yes in Jesus. Again, you can see that consistent in 1 Corinthians. I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? It's a fair question. If a man claims that God could resurrect someone, why is he on death row here? Why, if you, if you, you believe in Yahweh, you are children of Israel, as it were, you're at least familiar with it, and you adhere to that, and you give them the right to walk about freely. And we as Jews, we, we, I mean, our whole life, Paul would say, is built around this covenant that God made with Abraham, who miraculously had a son later in life, that God miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through a series of plagues, and then miraculously provided for them in the desert, miraculously brought them across, miraculously used them as an instrument of wrath upon Canaan to judge that nation while also giving his chosen people their allotted land. This whole testimony, this whole nation is one big giant story of miracles. So why is it that I'm on death row because I believe God worked a miracle? It's a fair question. In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. He just admitted to a really, really vindictive, manipulative act that he would, he would apprehend Christians and try to force them to blaspheme so that he could justify having them arrested or even put to death. That would be the penalty for blasphemy with an Old Testament law. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. He's just admitted to his past sin. Now, Christian, in the shaping of your story, as you tell your story, watch out for pride in your past sin. Don't speak braggadociously about your past sin. Don't embellish it and make it worse than it actually was, but do acknowledge it with contrition and do speak it openly and honestly. Do speak about it candidly. There's a balance beam here. Because if, if, you're, if you're sharing your testimony and you want to over-exaggerate just how lost you really were, just how bad the bad things were that you did really were, if you're trying to make yourself sound phenomenally worse than the one that you're sharing the gospel with, be sure that you don't go to the point where you're actually bragging about how sinful you were. Make sure that you're bragging about how good God is. If, you're, if there's braggadocio, if there's a modicum of braggadocio in your testimony, let it be in Christ. If you're gonna boast, let it be in Christ and how good he's been, how merciful he has been. But do include this. Because there was an era, particularly maybe within the deep South Christianity, where you would tell your story, but you would really downplay the bad stuff you did. Here's the balance beam. Don't relish in your past sin and don't try to make yourself sound more sinful than the person you're sharing Christ with. And also, definitely don't go the other end of the spectrum and make it sound like you were perfect to begin with because that makes your testimony seemingly out of reach to the person who's coming under conviction for sin by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, with proper balance in contrition and the necessary degree of brutality, describes his past sins. And it's bad. It is bad. He was coaxing Christians into committing blasphemy so that by Jewish law, he could have them publicly stoned to death. In fact, he was there at the first stoning of a Christian. It's in Acts chapter seven. Stephen, one of the seven. He is describing with candid details how lost he was. He was filled with animosity against Christians. Okay, remember this. As you're sharing the gospel, if you should find yourself in a debate scenario, don't back down. It's, it's rarely fruitful in a debate scenario because they've already described their hard-heartedness as it were, but you don't know what God may do in their hearts after the fact with the story that you tell. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in seemingly, seemingly a confrontational situation trying to defend the Christian faith and, and the historicity of scripture and the testimony of Christ and then somebody else is pushing back with other arguments, ultimately from nihilism and then presuppositional apologetics would call them out for that. Like, that's meaningless, you shouldn't be passionate about that. Why are you passionate about your disbelief? Like you, you, you would go into a debate setting and then walk away seemingly fruitless and then fast forward the clock, in, in some cases weeks, in some cases months, even in one case several years, and then receive word back from that person that the Holy Spirit had used what happened in that moment to draw them to faith in Christ. Paul was faithful about his confession 
He was faithful in his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. He even acknowledges that he was not neutral in his opposition to Christianity. Okay, recognize the parallels here between his context and ours, between that setting and modern day Seattle. Those who would criticize or vilify Christianity would cloak themselves in objectivity, but they're not objective. They're not being neutral. We believe in the sin nature. We know this. Every parent believes in the sin nature. Everyone who's ever had a kid knows exactly what total depravity means. You just see it. They come out with little black belts in sin. They just know how to sin. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You got to teach them how to be holy. You got to teach them self-control. But we're all born with black belts in sin. But the person who would oppose Christianity would assume to have been born perfect, to be born neutral, absolutely objective, cloaking oneself in objectivity while condemning the one thing that could set them free from the sin nature that we were both born into. They're not neutral, Christian. Neither should you be. They're not neutral. Neither should you be. Because of total depravity, you know that they're unable to fully grasp truth itself because their eyes have scales on them just like yours used to. And their motivation for denying the gospel is not out of, certainly not out of uh, a, a lack of archeological evidence. It's certainly not out of the historicity of scripture and, den- and a denial thereof. Romans one says it really comes down to this. They, they're just suppressing that truth so they can get away with wickedness. I've led, I've led several militant atheists to Christ, and I don't say that to, to try to brag to you about this. I just want you to, I want to give you a behind the scenes look at what happens. Every time I've led a militant atheist to Christ, they confess to me that deep down there was part of them that always believed. And they would, they would uh, independently of one another, these people didn't even know each other most of the time, and, and they would describe to me the exact same thing, that at night they would pray. There was part of them that just always believed and they would push it down. Even one who had tattoo spots on his neck for the number of Christians he had dissuaded of the gospel. He's like, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. Because even while I was getting a tattoo on my neck to mark another Christian down, another Christian down, I secretly believed. It was to suppress the truth so that you could get away with sin. He's like, if I'm honest, Jesse, I just wanted to sleep with my girlfriend and not feel bad about it. That was why I put on this persona. There's another man who was a devil worshiper, okay? Gave his life to Christ. Now he's a rabid evangelist. And he also likewise says, even while I was in the church of Satan, I secretly kind of knew that the gospel was true. This is how Paul began, right? And before Agrippa, he knows about his understanding of messianic prophecy in Christ. And it's gonna end with him saying, I know that you believe. They're not neutral. Neither should you be. In my experience, even the most militant anti-Christian atheist secretly knows the gospel's true. This is consistent with Romans chapter one, that they suppress that truth to get away with wickedness. It's not a true objective discussion. It's a license to sin. That's what Romans one says. That's what my experience dictates. That's, what, that's also the approach that Paul is using. Again, man, it's remarkable how beautifully consistent he is in practice with what he describes philosophically in his epistles. Here's verse 12. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. This also adds up, right? This, this is consistent with what he said in last week's text. 
we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. This is interesting. There are three accounts of Paul's testimony in Acts. This is the only time that we've heard that the voice was speaking in Aramaic. Why include that detail now, but not when giving a defense before? It's because he knows, Agrippa knows Old Testament Messianic prophecy. He is again adapting his testimony so that it's best understood by the listener. To a Hebrew, that's pretty cool to know that like, hey, Yahweh speaks my language. He chose my language to speak it in. And so he says, in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We've heard that much. Here comes another little bit that appears in the authoritative manuscripts, but also in the King James Version is added to Acts chapter nine, verse five. I'll explain that in a second. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. All right, is that anybody's life verse? No? Okay, good. <laughs> what is a goad? Well, if you imagine a stick with a nail sticking out of it, while you're riding on an animal, riding on a horse, riding on a mule, you would just use that and turn it in such a way that that little, little bit of nail, without puncturing skin, would poke the animal to get the animal to go forward. And to kick against the goads is to resist what your owner is trying to get you to do. I, 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 grew, up, I grew up with horses. My parents still have horses. And I, it was, I know my, my childhood sounds like the weirdest thing ever because like I would surf and then I would also play football and I would drum and I would compete in rodeo. It's weird. Basically, I grew up on horses and man, they can be really stupid, stubborn animals sometimes. And if you've got a really stubborn horse, sometimes it's so funny, you gotta choose. If you've got a horse that is just really easy going and always, all you gotta do is make that little sound and they'll just obey and you can just trot happily. That horse probably stinks in competition. But if you've got a horse who is trying to murder you on a weekly basis, it's worth it because that's where the trophies come from. <laughs> My family used to go and compete in these jackpots, right, where you pay for entry and you win the prize. The best horses we ever had were the ones that were trying to murder us all the time. Now, the goad is there in the Old Testament since this is to try to get that horse to do what you want it to do. And if, you're, if your horse is resisting against you, it's gonna be a rough time. It's gonna be a rough time for that horse. And so this is, what G, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to Paul. It is difficult for you to kick against the goats. Like, you're the horse, you're stubborn. I'm going to get you to do what I want you to do. And it's gonna be difficult for you to resist. It is difficult for you to kick against the goats. The King James Version says, all right, direct translation, it is difficult for you to kick against the pricks. Some of you guys are like, that sounds like my work life. <laughs> that is a rough translation of goad. This sting, this word sting is also used in 1 Corinthians to describe the sting of death. So whether it's, it's, translated, the, it's translated prick in King James, it's translated goads here in a lot of other modern translation, but it also is translated sting. And all these are right renderings of the same idea. Jesse, why does this appear in the King James in chapter nine, verse five, but nowhere else? Even in the ancient manuscripts, the, those developed by Stephanus in 1550, from which the King James was drawn, don't include, it is difficult for you to kick against the goads in the original iteration in Acts chapter nine. The books of Acts and Revelation contain 
contain more variances in the ancient manuscripts than other books of the Bible. Stephanus was doing what he could with what he had at the time. Since Stephanus's work, we discovered about 5,000 more ancient manuscripts that provide greater clarity on the book of Acts. And the field of archaeology, you know, like exists now. And so as a result, Stephanus did what he could. Erasmus, the head of the Catholic Church's committee as a scribe to develop the King James translation, did what they could. But there were other times when they would embellish. All right, this was in a discussion question in our curriculum this last week. Like, hey, where's chapter, where, where is verse 7? All right, this is the common way that it, it appears in meme form on Facebook. It'll show the King James Version, and then it'll show a modern translation, and it'll say, they, they're taking verses out of the Word of God. No. No. Rather, the King James would in, at times add embellishments. It's reasonable to take this verse, it's difficult for you to kick against the goads, and add it to chapter 9, because here we are on trial. Paul is giving his defense before Agrippa, and he says, who are you, Lord? It is I, Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is difficult for you to kick against the goads. He has just added that detail here, so it's easy to take that and then add it to chapter 9. But the reason that he included it now is that he's giving his defense before Agrippa. That phrase would have made no sense to the other listeners. So when the King James takes this sentence and adds it to chapter 9, verse 5, that is a deviation from even the manuscript collection, even the textus receptus from which the King James is drawn. Older manuscripts do not include that in, in 9.5. There are other moments as well where you're going to see stuff in the King James that doesn't appear elsewhere. For example, you grow up playing football in the South, the same coaches that are cursing at you throughout the week then sit you down and say, now say the Lord's Prayer, boys. And so we all say it in the King James, and it ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. That's beautiful. It's called a doxology, and it's great. It's not in the manuscript. It's not in the original text. It was added as a, as, as a flourish, as an embellishment within the King James. So when you see that meme pop up that accuses modern translations of taking verses out of the Bible, Understand that is not the case. No modern translation takes any verse out of the Bible. I know this because I was on the team that launched this translation. It's the most terrifying thing in the world to be responsible for the word of God. You are under a curse if you take words out of the word of God. And if you add words to the word of God. All right, my Mormon friends really loved that one on my deck last week. This is, not, this is not a conspiracy to pluck things out of Scripture. Rather, the numerology of the verses was determined by the King James. And so if you produce a new translation, not translating the King James, by the way, that's not how, I can say this, when we rendered the CSB, we drew from the Nestle Allen and the Westcott Hort, the Novum Testamentum collection of manuscripts, the most authoritative, the oldest, and the most consistent set of manuscripts. That's where this came from. We didn't take the King James and try to make it readable. We went to the original manuscripts, the ancient copies of the manuscripts, and then produced the translation. That's where it actually came from, from the original languages. And when we did that, we didn't say, nope, we're skipping that verse. Nope, we're plucking that one out. Rather, when you see a textual variant, look at the bottom of the page. Because what was included in some manuscripts, but not all, is provided in footnote form, or it's bracketed, or it's italicized. Because when you come upon a passage like Mark 16, or John chapter 7, uh, to, uh, through, uh, into, into chapter 8, or this passage in 1 John that is straight up different in the King James and other translations, what are you supposed to do? Because it may be the word of God and it may not. You include it in case it is, but you bracket it in case it isn't. 
Modern translations, I'm going to repeat this. Modern Bible translations do not take verses out of the Bible. Rather, Erasmus and his team within the Catholic Church producing the King James Version would add things in at times. Moreover, if the ancient manuscripts are inconsistent, it's indicated with a footnote. So here's Paul giving his testimony. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is difficult for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. This is another detail that we haven't heard in the previous account. In our previous accounts, we know that Ananias said this to Paul. Now, based on Paul's recollection of it, we know that God had said it to him. And so when Ananias said it to him, it was already in his heart. It was consistent. What Ananias said was expected, which by the way, doesn't that mean that Ananias was freaking out for nothing? Because he was told by God to go to Saul and lay his hand on him and call him brother. And he was terrified of Saul. That's like walking in and meeting a Taliban general and saying, God told me to tell you, you're my brother in Christ. And he was freaking out about this. But meanwhile, what he didn't know is that all the while, God was already working on his heart. God was already working on his heart. He had already told him that he was going to reach the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That is powerful. Straight up from darkness to light, from Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a tremendous statement. It sounds like an immense indictment of Israel, doesn't it? Saying like, they who are denying my son as the Messiah are doing the will of Satan. But remember how it ends. That's true. It is a heavy indictment that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It is a beautiful message of grace and repentance and restoration. There was a scam in the Bahamas a few years ago. Bahamas is a fascinating place right off the coast of Florida, Jesse and I went there when we lived in Florida, and it was cool. They have a $3 bill. A little bit more to Bahamas than the $3 bill. Don't know why I mentioned that. <laughs> we were at Disney World in Frontierland. You've got Thunder Mountain Railroad, and you've got Splash Mountain, and you've got to ride Splash Mountain every time you go. It's a law. You get a ticket if you don't. It's Road Splash Mountain, and Jesse, <laughs> we were pros at the theme parks, okay? We knew how this worked. <laughs> there's this thing called child swap. And no, it's not where you get to go trade kids. It's where you can, one at a time, one parent rides and the other one stays with the kids and then you swap. All right, it also means you get to cut a lot of people in line. Okay, so bring a kid. And we would go to Splash Mountain. We did our thing. When Jessie was on her turn through child swap, she's like, I could swear I saw Travis Barker in line. All right, Travis Barker was the drummer for a band called Blink-182. And when I was in high school, that was the fun thing to do, was to take like Travis Barker drum solos and try to learn them. That was what me and my drummer buddies would try to do. Because it was just really cool. He was like punk drumming for pop musicians. And, and uh, she noticed him because of the giant mohawk, and, and it's kind of easy to spot. So we, we, we left Splash Mountain. We were on our way. Pecos Bill Cafe is the best barbecue in Frontierland. By the way, that's a pro tip for you. We were there by Splash Mountain where the plume goes around the corner, and Jessie was there with me, and she was elbowing me. She's like, call out to him, call out to him. And I was like, all right, Travis Barker. 
And then he didn't look. And she's like, why'd you do that? So embarrassed. <laughs> like, you told me to, woman. Well, Travis Barker was there because he was supposed to drum for a festival called the Fire Festival. The Fire Festival turned out to be a sham. The guy who organized it was accused of fraud. He hadn't done any of his work to prepare for this event. And so Blink-182 backed out because they weren't set up for success. Fast forward a few months, the same guy who had already been arrested for defrauding people for $100 million was at it again, only this time he just used his email database from the Fire Festival to email people under a different name. It was called NYC VIP, and he was selling fake tickets to Coachella and other music festivals. The same fraudster who brought people to an island that used to belong to Pablo Escobar, the same guy who defrauded them was now just using a pseudonym. He just now had another alias. Here's the thing. When you defy God, there's only one other side in this fight. So it's not overly dramatic of Paul to accuse those opposed to Jesus as on the side of Satan. He's the same one who's tricked you before. Now it's just under another alias. Satan doesn't show up with the pitchfork and the tail and the horns and the cartoonish looking puff of fire around him because you would just say, no. He actually cloaks himself in virtue. It's the same trickster, the same fraudster, just under a different name this time. This is the power of Satan. Those who adhere to Satan's will think they're doing good because this is how Satan defrauds as he originated an angel of light. It, it makes them appear virtuous, so it's not overly dramatic. And remember, the basic purpose was that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here's how it closes. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. That's consistent. Acts 21 verses 30 through 36 attests as such. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. He's calling people to repent and to repent in a way that is consistent with salvation. Matthew chapter seven says as much, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father. Because you're saved, you're gonna repent. Because you're saved, you're filled with the spirit. Because you're filled with the spirit, your life is going to bear fruit. So that repentance is going to evidence itself. None of us has any authority to look at someone and say, that person's saved and that person's not. That's God's job. But you can know if someone's life is bearing fruit or not. This is what God was asking of the Gentiles and even the Jews now to, to deliver them from the power of Satan. They'd be forgiven and would repent and lead lives that evidence that repentance by bearing fruit. Lead lives that are consistent with repentance. If you've only given lip service to the gospel, you're, you're not going to heaven when you die. You're still going to hell. You confess Jesus as Lord, that means you're going to repent from sin. 
But if you just say, Lord, Lord, I said the magic words. Jesse said that if I say these words, then I'm going to be saved. It's like an incantation. It's like a spell. And God's like, ah, he said the words. I got to save him. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you've just confessed that he's in charge, that he's the boss, that he reigns, that he's on the throne. That means you're not. So either you just by the power of the Holy Spirit confess that Jesus is Lord and we're saved, or you just lied. So if you confess Jesus as Lord, you're going to repent from sin. You're going to lead a life that is consistent with repentance. And when you mess up, you repent. When you fall, you get back up again. The Holy Spirit's indwelling within you has ruined the fun of sin for you. This is the kind of repentance that Paul has called the Gentiles to and the Israelites to as well, that you would lead a life that is consistent with repentance. He speaks out overtly about the Messiah's sufferings. Think Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 5312. I think that that chapter delineation ought not be there. This describes the suffering of the Messiah before he was born. This is, this is consistent. This is also going to flow into the next thing that he says. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus ex exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. I've heard that before. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. <laughs> That's how you go on trial before a corrupt king. You believe this, Agrippa? I know you believe this. He knows what I'm talking about, Festus. He knows the prophecies. Do you believe it? I know you believe it. He just called him out publicly. I know you believe it, so just confess it. And he's in chains. Agrippa showed up with pomp and circumstance with giant sunglasses. And, and now Paul's the one in chains calling him out. I know that you believe this is true. You believe that God did everything that he promised he would through Moses. That's why I'm on trial here because of that hope. I can speak boldly to him because he knows better. Does that light a fire in your evangelistic soul, Christian? I can speak like this to you because you know better. I can speak like this to you because you know that's true. You've just been suppressing that truth to get away with wickedness. At the, at the heart of their hearts, they really believe. This has been the testimony of even the most ardent, militant, anti-Christian atheists, even devil worshipers that I've seen come to Christ. They still, at their core, at their hearts, they believe. This is how Paul is speaking to Agrippa. This is how you can speak too, Christian. This is how you can speak too. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? One rendering of that word translated easily in the Greek could also be quickly. Notice that he dodged the question because the question was, I know you believe. Do you believe? Meaning I know it's already true, so I'll just say it for everybody. And then this is, a, Agrippa is a master of deflection. Are you going to persuade me to be a Christian so easily? All right, and then at this point, Paul took his tail between his legs, head, held his head low, admitted defeat, and went home and was polite about it. You know, let's not be too in your face with the gospel. Let's just, just it's okay. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. Is that what happens? No, watch Paul. <laughs> I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's my man. Not only you, but everyone else, whether easy or with difficulty. I want everyone in the sound of my voice to become a Christian. It become as I am, and did you hear? Look, look at the grace behind these words, except for these chains. Here's what's remarkable about that. They deserve the chains. They tried twice to murder Paul. But his prayer is that those Jews who were listening would become Christians and they would have no chains. That Agrippa would have no chains. That Festus would have no chains. That Bernice would have no chains. That is a Christian testimony in hostile territory. Paul was not trying to defend himself. The whole thing was one big evangelistic opportunity. Now what opportunities are in your future week? That feels like a trial, but it's actually an opportunity. You get an audience with the boss upstairs and it's your chance to share the gospel. It's your chance to share your testimony. Remember Paul. <laughs> Whether easily or with difficulty, my heart's desire is that everyone who hears me will become as I am except for these chains. It's remarkable because they deserve chains and Paul didn't. Look at the grace and the forgiveness that's in Paul's heart. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with him got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man's not doing anything deserving of death or imprisonment. It's possible that Paul's testimony got to Agrippa. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. But you, when you get to heaven, you ask Paul, does he regret it? He'll say, absolutely not. Tell your story, Christian. Tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. Tell it in hostile territory. Lead people to Christ, go for it. Try to lead Agrippa to Christ. After that, try to lead Nero to Christ. Lead the people to Christ in your life who seem the farthest from him. They can't deny your story, your life before Christ, how you came to know Christ, what life has been like since Christ. Two weeks in a row, we've seen Paul tell his story, adapting it even with details for Agrippa who was learned in messianic prophecy. We've seen Paul tell his story in hostile territory. He wasn't trying to defend himself. He had an audience with the king now, with Herod, with Herod Agrippa, and he was trying to share the gospel with him, and he just may have done it. He just may have gotten through. Agrippa's question was a deflection. Are you gonna persuade me so easily to become a Christian, Paul? He was deflecting, and then he ended up defending Paul. Here's what's so cool. Paul didn't defend himself. He just came there to evangelize, but God took care of Paul in the end. Because in the end, it was even Agrippa himself and Bernice who said, this man's not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. If you just share the gospel, share your story, God's going to take care of all the other details. Do you see what God did for Paul? He'll do the same for you, Christian. You be fearless. You tell your story. Say the name of Jesus. Adhere to your testimony in the resurrection. Place that at their feet. You give them the chance to respond. You know that you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is there at the bistro table, at the coffee shop, in the conference room by the water cooler in the parking lot it's not just the two of you there are three present Jesus is there he said it in the great commission you're not alone you tell your story without flinching you confess Christ I believe in his resurrection and whether it comes easy or with difficulty I want everyone in my workplace everyone in my family everyone in my neighborhood to come to believe in Jesus I wish everything about me for you except for my chains except for my suffering that's what I wish for you. Christian, 
rise up. You tell your story in hostile territory. You tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. This is what God does. He's done it in the book of Acts. He can do it here too. Let's go before God. Because I believe that even as we proclaim this story, God's gonna write another one in this room. Would you stand with us? And if you are not a Christian, if you are my skeptical friend, and you've seen the Christian testimony in Paul, and you're like, Paul was trying to persuade Agrippa, but he ended up persuading me. I wanna invite you to give your life to Christ right now. Jesus, I apparently believe in you because I'm talking to you right now. I, I see this guy, Paul, before Agrippa, and I see your story, and I, I know that you've always been there. I, I think that I'm like Paul because I, deep down, I just know I've not been objective about this. I, I know that I try to signal like I'm virtuous, but really deep down, I, I'm, I'm scared that there are consequences for my sin, and I sense the grace with which you're drawing me, and I hear him tell the Jews and the Gentiles both to repent from the power of Satan to the power of God, from darkness to light, and I've never thought of it that way before. I'm scared. I don't want to do the will of evil. I don't want to do the will of Satan. I've never professed belief in Satan, but I've also never borne repentant fruit in my life. So, Jesus, would you save me? I believe that you love the world so much, God, that you gave your son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. I confess with my mouth, and I mean it, Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, bear fruit through my life. I repent. I denounce Satan. I denounce evil. I denounce my sin. I'm rising up and walking in newness of life. I'm going to tell my story in hostile territory, whether it comes easily or with difficulty. God, use me as a catalyst for revival. In Jesus' name, amen. You come forward and be prayed for as we close with worship together.